This is Risk Reward, the place where the next generation of insurance professionals are inspired and found. I'm your host, Darren Bloomfield, a senior risk management and insurance and finance dual major at Bolt University, where I'm also the president of our Gamma Iota Sigma chapter. Joining us today is Tim Fletcher. Tim has been at Gen Re for 15 plus years, and he is going to join us and talk about his career path and some of the transitions in emerging risks that I've seen. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Glad to be here. So to get started here, you spent most, your, I guess, your whole career at Genry. Can you kind of talk about how your roles kind of have changed throughout kind of some mobility with, within Genry, kind of doing some different things and how, how your day-to-day is, has kind of changed with your different roles? Sure. Actually, I've not been with Genry my entire career. The first half of it was basically with a company that's now been merged into Travelers called St. Paul Fire Mean Insurance Company. Actually got into this business uh, with a BA in journalism, thought I wanted to be a sports writer. Ended up in the insurance business, which I think for a variety of reasons has worked out well for me. Came over to Genry actually 18 years ago to the day in a claims role. A uh, company at the time had a large book of med mal business. That was my specialty. The bulk of my career was handling medical malpractice claims. So that was really what I did the first part of my career. As our business mix changed, uh, I ended up handling uh, more liability, casualty type claims, general liability, uh, other professional liability, and uh, a lot of auto, commercial auto, commercial umbrella business. And then uh, two years ago, just over two years ago, I switched over into the emerging issues role that I now hold and uh, have just been thrilled with uh, both the company and what I'm doing professionally. Yeah, no, definitely. It sounds like you've had a lot of exposure to a lot of uh, different industries of, of insureds. Can you kind of talk about like the transition of having to kind of learn the different exposures for like MedMal versus some of like the general casualty? Because you have to kind of be a, a specialist, like in kind of know the forms, kind of know some of the coverage, how like the, the intents kind of applied to these actual claims. Can you kind of talk about like the research that you kind of have to do or how to kind of transition to, to the business need uh, that the company has? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it transitions, like, for example, the casualty claim, you know, you're always going to have to evaluate damages. There are things that are different with respect to coverage forms, what sort of coverages apply. Um, a lot of that you learn by practical experience. But, you know, there are a couple of other things that help me out along the way. Uh, two was uh, going to law school about halfway through my career. Uh, thankfully for both me and the legal profession, I did not end up actively practicing. But, you know, that gave me the discipline, I think, to sort of evaluate coverage matters. But then also the other thing I would mention, too, is uh, getting my CPCU was very helpful, too, just in the sense of giving you that broad-based exposure to all facets of the industry. And you really gain, I think, a really good understanding of how the pieces all fit together, so to speak. And then the other thing, too, as far as learning the nuances of various other lines of business, you know, at the time, there were people who had done the work that were more experienced than me that really did a good job of mentoring me. And I, you know, I think a lot of that uh, still goes on in the industry and obviously needs to going forward as, you know, the composition of the workforce changes. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. Just kind of being like in the room with some, some experts and just kind of having those, 
those mentors and just mm-hmm. really being able to pick up on like so, like I think a big thing in insurance is kind of like the the stories of of like what could go wrong or what could happen, and then just being able to kind of learn uh, from that and then kind of apply like little tidbits of of information to kind of like the new scenario that you're kind of seeing like how to like process that that information exactly. Well, you know, then one thing too that's sort of unique to a reinsurance. You go out on on what are known as claim reviews. So let's say you've got a big client that you have a reinsurance relationship with. They have an inventory of claims that you're following, and and what would happen, and what had would continue to happen is, you know, we would go out and do an annual claim review. We actually would go out and look at several of us who would go out, look at a block of claims, some of them having material exposure to the reinsurance layer, and. You know, just being in the room, evaluating claims, talking about them, there's a whole um, good amount of knowledge transfer that takes place. And that practical experience sort of gets conveyed uh, from more senior people to people that are, you know, sort of learning the business or learning the line of business. And then what's kind of like over the years, obviously, like, you know, there's there's always kind of like a like a hotline of business, you know, like where all like the claims are kind of coming through or there's, you know, like with your kind of emerging exposures, like, can you kind of talk about uh, like the shifts of, like, I know medical malpractice had big issues many, many years ago, just kind of like those nuclear verdicts. And then they kind of had to go through like, uh, you know, some tort reform and some like kind of back of the house, kind of litigious kind of side of it. And then how do you kind of see that like process of, you know, getting kind of these claims kind of under control and kind of controlling like the nuclear verdicts and kind of bring everyone back down to like a kind of the, the normal kind of uh, like suing for like kind of a normal amount. Sure. Um, I have to give a shameless plug. We, we uh, have just finished. In fact, the last segment uh, just uh, posted today. Uh, we've done a five part series on social inflation with NAMIC, mm-hmm. National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Um, one of the big problems um, that the industry is facing is this whole notion of social inflation. In other words, just cases that would settle at a value that was predictable, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. We're starting to see a larger number of what are known as nuclear verdicts, uh, that is verdicts in excess of $10 million or subnuclear verdicts defined between 5 and 10. Um, these are awards that have really affected certain lines of business more than others. It's been very difficult in commercial auto, specifically commercial trucking, but other lines of business have been affected as well. You'd mentioned medical malpractice. We've seen a number of, of outside verdict in that area. We had, for example, a, a $10 million verdict here in Georgia just within the last couple of months. So. Uh, you know, the concern is, you know, what's happening? Why are these large verdicts taking place? And really, you know, what is an industry can we do to mitigate the effects of social inflation and, and sort of bring this under control, so to speak? You know, one of the things that I should mention and we talk about in the this most recent blog series it, is that historically, uh, the industry has gone through episodes like this. Uh, in the mid '80s, when I entered the business, uh, combined ratios on the general liability side were well north of 140. I think it peaked at 151 in 1984. 
And, you know, you had real problems with getting coverage in certain lines. Medical malpractice was was the prime example. So, and really what happened there, because of that uh, availability crisis, because of these massive premium increases, you really started seeing some um, legislative changes take place. We started seeing things like states implementing tort reform, capping non-economic damages, and really um, that introduced a period of pretty significant stability. Um, now, combined ratios in the industry are nowhere near to that degree, but they are ticking upward. You know, the commercial auto line of business is a real problem still for the industry. And really, we need to figure out what we can do to bring verdicts under control. Um, and there's some thoughts about that as far as what may be driving that as well. So, yeah, no, you definitely covered a lot there to kind of go back through. And like, I think the question you posed of like, why are these large claim amounts taking place? And I've kind of been doing some reflecting on that. It's just kind of what what society as a whole is is like advertised to them. Sure. Uh, like lawyers uh, kind of on like road, some of the road trips I've just been on, you know, up and down the highway. It's it's all like the lawyers advertising to to the public like, oh, are you an auto wreck? Sue this person. Uh, you know, I'm a lawyer. Like, And then it, it's like, oh, are you injured or... If have you got fired or like like it's just kind of a very like litigious society. So you know, what do you kind of think about that? Like of the public just being constantly like advertised and kind of have that that perspective of uh, like anti uh, companies, kind of anti uh, larger uh, like entities. You know what I'm saying? Like everyone just kind of wants to like sue. Yeah. Like it just kind of seems like everyone's mindset is kind of. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there to unpack. And, you know, one of the things, you know, attorney advertising, uh, it is uh, increased uh, by a large degree over the last 10 years, billboards, uh, major league ball games being sponsored. I mean, I live here in Metro Atlanta and I drive by a billboard every day. If you've been hit, call me, you'll flit. And, you know, so there's that kind of stuff going on around the country. There's a correlation between you know, attorney advertising in claim activity. Uh, it's also no secret that, you know, when you have a case where there's attorney involvement, you know, cases more difficult to settle. Sometimes in some instances, you might have attorney directed medical treatment that might not otherwise take place. And, you know, it's just generally a factor that gets thrown into the mix. You know, a couple of other things that I would mention to you as well is, you know, we've gone through a pretty significant a change in you know our economy concentration of wealth over the last 10 years going back to really the great recession of circa 2000 2008 and you know a lot of people have written about it you know the the hollowing out of the american middle class concentration of wealth you know not only by generation the baby boomers but also in coastal cities you know are we seeing now the effects of a significant portion of the society struggling economically, being concerned about their own futures, and as a result, really being somewhat resentful, distrustful toward institutions, um, corporations. And is this really the, the large verdict? Is this sort of a way of of expressing that resentment and anger? I don't know, but it it, it certainly to a degree feels that way. Yeah, well, all, all that seems like it's it's very hard to underwrite for just with the the concept of underwriting. You're kind of taking past claims history, factoring it in, and then charging an appropriate premium. 
that will help you kind of pay out those losses in, in that pool. Yeah. But then if if your data for the last five, 10 years is now kind of irrelevant because the claim amounts are so out of whack that that just makes it so hard to, to underwrite for. So then all the premiums are going up. So like, do you think kind of society as a whole kind of understands that that impact of, okay, like, yeah, anti-corporate sentiment and then kind of is this kind of a way to get back at, at that and kind of even the odds out kind of with, with those those large claim amounts. But then with that, that's making, you know, all the businesses pay more in insurance for, for their premium. And then these businesses have to, you know, let's say like raise their prices to cover their, their new expenses. Do you think like society as a whole kind of understands that? Or do you think there's kind of like a disconnect of like, these large nuclear verdicts kind of lining up with with these higher costs of some goods that they might be buying? Yeah, well, I, I think there is a disconnect. And I, I don't think um, society fully appreciates or understands what the implications are. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, we all end up paying more through higher premiums. And, you know, is that something that the industry could perhaps do a better job of is, is communicating those kind of messages? I think so. You know, I think one area too that probably should mention here too that is a, a we think at least a, a big driver of social inflation is litigation funding, where you have third party funders coming in and you know funding either individual lawsuits or entire portfolios of a law firm's um, uh, inventory. You know that that too is driving it, and it you know this is largely uh, an industry that has come on and for all practical purposes is basically unregulated. And, you know, this is something too, that the, the industry perhaps could do a better job of, uh, informing the public about and what the ramifications are. You know, one other thing too, that you'd mentioned about premium, I think one of the things that's concerning is, uh, yeah, you know, you may be charging more premium for a particular risk, but the concern always is, is it enough given what we're seeing in, some of these large verdicts or uh, settlements at amounts um, that we hadn't contemplated four or five years ago. So, you know, and the other thing too, I mean, part of it is the, you know, we as a society, there've been advancements in medicine. Uh, people, for example, have a greater chance of surviving a, a catastrophic or a traumatic automobile accident, better chance of it now than they did 15 years ago. But, you know, the, the other side of that is that the medical specials, the costs of providing that treatment are significantly more expensive than they would have been 10 years ago. So, I mean, it's just, it, it's a, there are a bunch of variables that, that get thrown into the mix. Yeah. Well, something you kind of said is, is what can the insurance industry do better? And that's something I was kind of wondering too, is the communication too, uh, with that, but then also with like kind of these legislative changes, kind of tort reform and, and such that you mentioned, like, when is it the actual uh, like you've been mentioning like auto a lot. So when is it like the the industry class of, of auto? When is it like these businesses jobs to kind of like, should they kind of lead the charge and and kind of explaining that and kind of uh, kind of lobbying kind of the courts to kind of change some some reform on, on the torts? Or when is it the actual because like I've kind of heard some some underwriters kind of say like, like, hey, we just take what you give us and like underwrite it. And this is the premium that, that we charge. Like, it's not like our fault that that your industry class is, is you know, risky, more risky, or kind of like has these opportunities for nuclear verdicts. So when is it kind of the industry class versus like the, 
the insurance kind of carriers to kind of kind of lead that charge on on reform? A uh, difficult question, uh, no easy answer. Um, I think that as a practical matter, things sort of have to get to a tipping point before you might see meaningful action. For example, uh, coverage either becoming unavailable or uh, priced at a, at a at a level where it's not viable for a particular policyholder. Um, the other thing that that you know you probably will see happen is improvements from a risk management standpoint. For example, uh, commercial trucking uh, might we see in the next ten to fifteen years advancements as far as autonomous vehicles, where you're able to operate autonomous uh, platoons of tractor trailers uh, on a trucking corridor over you know a relatively untraveled piece of interstate. That are, there's an example of risk management and a technological advance that would you know ultimately lead to reduced loss costs. So I mean, you know, a lot of things would need to come into play for I think something meaningful to happen. But you know, as a fundamental matter, I think I just think that, that we as an industry could do a better job of of explaining the impact of what these verdicts um, have on the general public. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of a good point. Uh, two is kind of the, the risk management of like either coverage isn't going to be available or there's going to be like so many exclusions that's not really covering uh, really anything yeah. at that point. And then like kind of the improved risk management for, for commercial auto. I had an internship this summer and it was it was transportation specialist, kind of a, a binding authority. And we mm-hmm. like we kind of saw some of like the carriers were uh, kind of putting out like some dash cams. So the carriers were kind of advertising dash cams to their insurers and that would kind of reduce like their premium. Sure. So then it's like it's like the camera is facing uh, the driver and there's also the camera uh, out. Uh, so you can kind of see what the driver's seeing. And it also does like the speed tracking. So uh, we were kind of watching <laughs> a lot of videos of like the accidents and like just kind of being able to like see that. And then it kind of I think like that adoption of it is is like oh some some people are at the privacy standpoint where like we don't we don't want you know to be, to be watched or, or whatever but then it also like there was there's a lot of benefits like i watched some videos where like it was the truck in front of them that you know backed up they were kind of moving and then they backed up into the truck behind them and it was kind of without like that video it would have been like the wrong truck or the wrong company would have been kind of getting sued sure. for that and just kind of like who's at fault and then i I think that's kind of another thing comes back to like society as, as a whole, like, you know, oh, if I cut off, cut in front of a, a big tractor trailer, then like I can sue them for a, a lot of money. And like, I, I just think like kind of these, these risk management and risk management techniques and tools and really being able to like understand uh, what's what's going on and how to how to protect yeah, that class of industry for, for transportation. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing, too, that just kind of struck me, too, is that, you know, uh, user-based insurance, UBI, uh, we're actually taking data from the vehicle. I mean, there's been some things written about how that too may really incent um, better behavior with respect to driving, particularly young drivers. So, I mean, there's there's some things too that I think are on the horizon that probably will serve to temper the effects of social inflation a little bit. So, so we've been talking a lot about claims and kind of the nuclear verdicts. So I guess my question to you is when when does the carrier kind of decide of of when to bring this case to trial or, or when to settle? And I kind of think that, you know, if you settle early, 
you might like open up the like the precedent of of kind of attract the attention of as we said these litigation financing people if they kind of see that like oh this class of business this carrier is going to settle very quick then they kind of see like that that short timeline to get like return on on equity but then also if we you can't bring everything to trial and then also with that like defense costs and all that will also like add up in the in the long term so even if you win you don't have to pay out necessarily the the limits but you're still paying out expenses and, and defense costs so how do you kind of balance that or is that just kind of an ongoing uh, game to play well i mean it's an ongoing issue uh you know i think the one thing though you know there's an old adage in the, in the claim business you know a bad case never gets better with time and you know i think one of the things that um may need to happen more than it is particularly on these nuclear verdicts is if you've got a case with you know, very, very uh, bad damages and you've got some liability problems, you know, the thing that you probably need to do is move to settle it as quickly as possible. Um, the other thing, too, that we're starting to see carriers do is, you know, be, be evaluate cases more promptly, but also, you know, using more widely tools that they might not have used in the past, such as uh, a mock trial or a focus group to really help you get a sense of as to what the jury in that particular venue, how they're going to view the case. And I think things like that probably will help. Um, I think one of the things that would be fascinating to do is to take a case where one of these nuclear verdicts has resulted and really just do a complete postmortem on it. You know, what were the decisions that were made? When were they made? You know, what were the impact of those decisions? And really, you know, what can we learn from that? And uh, I think one of the common themes of these nuclear verdicts is that they just, you know, horrific facts, uh, oftentimes, you know, issues with liability. And really, you find yourself kind of wondering, well, you know, what what happened there? What, you know, what what could have been done differently from an evaluation standpoint or, you know, decision making that might have resulted in a little bit different outcome? Yeah, no, it's definitely very interesting is there's, I mean, unfortunately, there's been enough of these nuclear verdicts where there would be material to kind of put together. I think you're kind of talking like a case study to kind of like review and kind of go back. Sure. So in understanding these these past trends would help you maybe present differently going into the courtroom or different kind of approach to it. And then also with that, you mentioned kind of the, the jury right. kind of in these different venues. I mean, I know there's some very litigious states that some carriers don't really want to write in, you know, like Texas, uh, Florida, California, New York, kind of in, in the kind of those areas kind of big for like nuclear verdicts. So yeah, how would you kind of approach that? Or what do you think that like the timeline on a maybe like more more research being kind of put in into like understanding the the behind the scenes of these nuclear verdicts or or how to approach it differently? Well yeah, I mean and I think the other thing too uh you know I should mention is that you know a lot of these verdicts you know have occurred in particular states, you know, Florida uh, California, you know, we've had a couple of bad ones here in Georgia, but I think one of the things that that I've seen is that, you know, this is something that is a phenomenon that's reaching throughout the country. You know, I've seen a couple of verdicts in the Midwest that were very surprising. A fifty-one million dollar verdict in you know outside of Chicago in a suburban county, very surprising. So. I guess what I'm trying to say about it is to the extent, while it is by and large limited to certain states, it's something that um, we've seen throughout the country. 
and I think to your original question about, well, you know, how do we how do we identify those cases and how do we prevent these verdicts? I think, you know, data and analytics will help us with that. I mean, a lot is being done as far as, you know, collecting, you know, data on a various on various cases. You know, what are the attributes that turn that case into a nuclear verdict? You know, what what can we do on the front end to identify a case that maybe you know, we didn't think really had that much value, but ultimately turned out to be a nuclear bomb. You know, I think so. I think it's like that. Uh, predictive modeling analytics, I think, are going to be of great help to the industry, um, certainly within the next five to 10 years. And I think that, too, will help. Yeah. Well, something you said was pretty interesting there. Of, during my last internship, like we kind of were doing some talking kind of on kind of the the trucking kind of side of the industry of of it's not just where the insured is based, uh-huh. the, where the transportation company is based. It's also where the insured is going, kind of the radius around the state. So we were tracing a lot of claims from Georgia, like Atlanta, Georgia-based insureds that were driving down to Florida, like the bottom half of Florida. And I just found it so interesting how like they kind of tie that together. Yep. And they also like, oh, from from like their appetite perspective of like, okay, we're not going to write business in the lower part of Florida, or, oh, if you're based in Atlanta and you're more than 20% of your like miles driven is, is in Florida, like we're, we're not going to write you. So I found that also pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the thing with data, I mean, that you can more easily collect that than you could have, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you've got a, a whole bunch of information that you can get from the vehicle itself. So, yeah. So what's kind of that opportunity for let's say like the the next generation of, you know, insurance professionals are also people who have these data analytic kind of backgrounds, but aren't currently working in the insurance industry right now. What's kind of like, what's the opportunity for them to come in? And I mean, there's clearly like a lot of work to do in the industry is definitely starting to invest in in that and kind of develop those modeling, predictive modelings. But what does that look like? You know, what's that process the next, five, 10 years, and who needs to be kind of a part of that, that transformation effort? Well, I mean, I think you're going to need a combination of people with technology, background, expertise, IT, but then also to, um, you know, people on the business side that understand or underwriting, evaluating risk. I think that that, you know, in a lot of that work will be done either by the companies themselves and or, you know, working with vendors. You know, the one thing I think I would say here, too, um, about the industry, and, you know, we were talking earlier about public education, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed being part of the business. And I think uh, for anybody out there thinking about a career in the insurance industry, I would say to you that what you may think it is, it's completely different once you get inside of uh, the industry and become part of it. I think it's a great, uh, it's fun. You're solving business problems. You're working with a group of people that are incredibly professional. Uh, You know, and I think that, you know, the public thinks that, you know, we find ways to not cover claims. They actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. There's always been an effort, at least with the companies I've worked for, is to make sure we're evaluating coverage fairly and, you know, try to find ways to cover losses. And, uh, I think it's a very, uh, it's been a rewarding, interesting career for me. I think the one thing I would say too, uh, while I'm thinking about it, is people entering the industry. I hope they have more of an opportunity 
to cross over and do other things. And I think that will happen. When I started, for example, it was, you know, you went into one of two silos, you either went into the claim side of it, or you were in underwriting and you just sort of was very hard to cross that gulf. I think that as time goes on, I think as people come into the industry, they're going to get to cross over and do those things, which I think will be better for the industry. You know, it's always good to have a wide perspective of different disciplines, but it also, I think, will be very more, much more rewarding for the people uh, individually as part of their careers to be able to do that. So, no, I, th- I think that's a, a huge point to to bring up, and I'm, I'm really happy you, you brought that up and just kind of. Like I think you're kind of talking about like not really being like pigeon held into okay your claims okay your right. underwriting or even outside of outside of the right. careers the other the other roles in the industry and I think what what you're also saying is like the different lens that you would look through if you were like a claims examiner kind of on the adjuster like on on like the front lines exactly and then once you take that step kind of back and it, as you're doing kind of the the more overview kind of ar- overarching themes you can kind of have both both view points and I, I think that really it's really beneficial to, to everything that you're you're trying to do. Absolutely. So what are some of the, the strategies that, that these carriers can can kind of use to to protect themselves now? Like are you seeing some higher retentions, kind of higher deductibles in that, or just a lot of added exclusions to limit down that, that clarify intent of coverage? Or uh like what 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 are some kind of trends, or I guess it depends on on the industry class or, or what product line? Well, I mean, it does depend on the class and, you know, a lot of it depends on, you know, whether a carrier has an appetite to perhaps maybe they're not as willing to put out as much limit as they would be in the past. You know, policyholders may be deciding to retain more risk than they might have otherwise previously in exchange for a reduction premium. All depends on the line of business, certainly depends on what the account's particular loss history is. But yeah, those kinds of things we're seeing and we'll always see in the marketplace, Um, you know, with respect to exclusions, you know, one of the things that, you know, is being talked about now in the industry are these PFAS, uh, these forever chemicals that are, you know, present in many of the waterproofing clothing and a variety of other consumable products. You know, is that, uh, you know, the debate is, is that are there health risks associated with PFAS? Do they represent an asbestos type uh, exposure to the industry? And is this something that, you know, we should be excluding in the future? I mean, there's debate on that going on right now. You know, the health effects of PFOS, you maybe are seeing a lot written about that. There have been a number of settlements against the major chemical producers. But there's an example of an emerging risk that, you know, the industry is going to have to deal with in the years ahead, as it would with any sort of emerging toxin that's identified. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. Just kind of seeing like where these large teams are coming from, and then adapting coverage to. So, because like the big thing in sure. underwriting is is really like the data, and you know you have to be profitable as, as a company, but you also want to be a specialist in in the business lines that that you are covering. So you really know the exposure to those businesses, and and as you're saying, some some of these exposures have really long tails. You know, like these claims can come, yes. you know, five ten years later. And I th- like I think just the way that underwriting works, that's like I don't want to be like, oh, that's unfair to to the carrier or to the underwriter, but it just makes like that job so so much harder of like you don't know when these claims are coming in. And the big thing of underwriting is you have to make 
you know, at this moment in time, you have to make the best decision that, that you have of all the information you have. And, you know, you don't have that information that, oh, a claim's going to come 10 years down the line when somebody researches this, this new topic and has a better understanding of how it impacts everyone's health. Like, I think that that's like so hard to, to, you know, keep on top of, but then like from the public's view, uh, you know, again, back to the public education, like the public doesn't really care that that underwriter, that carrier didn't, didn't know or couldn't have known that what might happen. Well, it, you know, and it just, it, it strikes me in another perfect example of that are these uh, reviver statutes that we've seen passed around the country that have opened up windows for people to bring um, sexual abuse and molestation claims that otherwise would have been barred by a statute of limitations. And, you know, there's an example of an exposure that, you know, a general liability carrier in the writing business in the, you know, 1970s or 1980s would have never contemplated. So, you know, there are things like that that take place also that are challenging and a problem. So what is kind of kind of your day to day? I know you do a lot of research kind of working, but how much of these topics are coming from like internally uh, versus like externally with like internally being oh, wow, we're paying like a lot of claims in this line of business or this very specific like new emerging risk. And then you, your job is kind of research it and kind of lay out some, some information and kind of like uh, communicate that internally, but then also like externally of like maybe it hasn't happened to Genry yet, but if it's happening to, to other carriers out there, other reinsurers, then maybe we should know where we stand kind of on this or try to get ahead of it. So can you kind of talk about your, your day-to-day in, in that sense? Sure. You know, bulk of the day consists of reading and writing, taking in information from a variety of sources. Occasionally, uh, I'll be asked internally to look at something. Uh, give an example. A particular risk might be doing something unusual for from a business standpoint. Maybe asked to sort of comment on that. Occasionally, and then the other thing I do, there are two publications, client publications I maintain. Uh, one of them is on underinsured, uninsured motorist law. So there's daily research associated with that. Uh, we also keep information on liquor liability. So there's, you know, legal type research associated with that. But then really a lot of what I do also is sort of try to keep abreast of issues that may generally impact our industry. You know, we've been doing a lot on social inflation. That's one. But really a big topic is climate change. You know what? What is happening out there with respect to storm frequencies, storm severity? You know, what are the data points that we can use to sort of help us evaluate risk and make underwriting decisions in coastal areas? Or really, you know, how do we plan for something that really wasn't impressive in an event like this winter storm URI back in February of this year? So, you know, it's a lot of it is is keeping up with that, trying to inform people about what's happening. As far as the information sources, 99% of it is publicly available. Read a lot of, you know, the major daily newspapers. Uh, they generally do a, a very good job of, of covering issues. A lot of it is specialty type stuff that I have subscriptions to or I've gained subscriptions to over the years. But um, I guess the bulk of what I do, if something is of particular interest to an underwriter here in our shop, I'll share it with him or her. So it, uh, a lot of what I do, it just sort of runs the gamut. Yeah, definitely. Well, you just mentioned climate change. I mean, just kind of cover that briefly. I, I haven't dived into it much, uh, but with like some, some articles that I've kind of seen, 
is, as we kind of talked about earlier, is one is like the risk on it uninsurable. And I've kind of seen that, you know, if the carriers or the reinsurers stop like offering coverage for pollution liability or some other of, of those exposures, like when it would that kind of change the incentives uh, of of the business to kind of change their their practices and and be more uh, environmentally friendly kind of with that. You know what I'm saying? Like if they we don't offer them like the cover, coverage to pollute, then they would have to change their ways is that there wouldn't be coverage for that. Can you kind of talk about that briefly if you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, what you what you've described is one thing, but I think the other thing that that may happen too is at what point does um, coverage become unavailable or uh, very difficult for a consumer to purchase? For example, let's say you know we've had record number of wildfires out in the western United States. Certainly, have seen them in California. I mean, at some at what point does it become an avail- coverage availability issue? I think that's one impact. You know, are we, you know, the historical models that we have used uh, for catastrophes? I mean, are, are is that data now invalid or needs to be changed because of what we've seen with uh, recent hurricane activity? Uh, you know, other weather related events, this big derecho that we had in, in central Iowa a year ago, all these events really are putting pressure on the industry and really, I think, causing people to think about well, what, you know, what, what, what are the impacts? How do we, how do we price for these events? And, you know, what sort of underwriting decisions do we make? Do we not write in certain parts of the country? I mean, all sorts of um, factors come into play here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot going on there and, you know, I'd be pretty interested to see how, how it all plays out. Uh, but thank you for your time here, Tim. Some, some important topics that we covered throughout this. Sure. Uh, where the opportunities for, for new recruits to come into the industry, uh, build out some data analytic projects and, you know, some technology experts and just business students, kind of people who really understand business and how different industries operate and how to, how to kind of ensure, ensure those risks. We also covered social inflation and, and nuclear verdicts. Some, some states are more litigious than others and some lines of business, you know, it kind of, it kind of changes, uh, which, which kind of has most exposure with some, some claims activity, but then we kind of talked about, you know, why is this taking place? And I thought that was kind of an interesting dive on that. And then the attraction of being able to to cross over as you did from from one area to kind of the other, getting that kind of a different perspective of, of what's going on and just kind of improving uh, your overall understanding of, of the industry. Yeah. I have to say, I, I've enjoyed my career immensely, and I would encourage anybody who's thinking about a career in risk management insurance to to move forward with it. I, you know, the other thing I didn't mention to you too, it's a stable industry. I mean, it's a product that people are always going to need to purchase, and it's been a great way to earn a living. So, yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm I'm really looking forward to my career as well. But yep. thank you. Well, thanks, thank you for your time. Sure, glad to do it, Darren. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to Risk Reward. Like what you've heard, find more episodes at the National Alliance website, scic.com, or download directly from Spotify or wherever else you get your shows. If you would like to get more involved, please fill out our listener survey. Your ideas and feedback help us bring you the most relevant content. Be sure to subscribe for the newest episodes.